This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This is Red Box, the politics podcast on The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. And a special hello to Silas2511 and D Lockwood, who said nice things about us on iTunes, and to Sunshine D, who said less nice things about us being increasingly sanctimonious and smug, as if I care. On this week's episode, we've got politics, penguins and pills. Times columnist Alice Thompson wonders if we really should get involved in trouble. Matthew Paris asks, do we get the bang for our buck on mental health? But first, after all the excitement of last week, the coup against Theresa May is off for now. Times political editor Francis Elliott asks how the plotters got it so wrong. The Brexiteers sputtering coup shames a party that used to do disloyalties so well. What's worse is that many leading leavers were key figures in the defenestration of Ian Duncan Smith 15 years ago. They really ought to know how to do it. Now they're there on the other side. We were always told the Tories they were ruthless. They knew how to yeah. get rid of it. When things were bad, they would get rid of a leader and it turns out they're rubbish. <laughs> Train killers, everyone. <laughs> What's gone wrong? They are hopelessly divided over tactics, over the succession and over their end destination for Brexit in any case. This has been a sort of a crisis brewing over the last two years within their own ranks. Obviously, well, there was an external enemy of Theresa May. It was slightly um, disguised. But when they actually had to do something, which is act in a coordinated fashion, you know, we can see that they are unable to coordinate. Uh, I mean, the, the essential division is between those who think that now is the time uh, and those who realise that if they trigger a vote, she's likely to win a vote of no confidence and therefore I would be safe from another vote of confidence for 12 months. To what extent do you think that in the past, when they've got rid of Ian Duncan Smith, and actually even when they did the same to Margaret Thatcher, the stakes were less high at that precise moment in the, the fortunes of the party and the country? Are there some that are nervous about huffing a Prime Minister out at this precise moment? Well, obviously, that is a that is part of the background. I mean, the defenestration of Ian Duncan Smith was well between two elections. It was safe to do so. It was a sort of agreed procedure in, in that sort of inimitable way that Tory <laughs> parliamentary <laughs> politics particularly can evolve, that, that, that actually there needn't to be, you know, that, that, that there was a, a successor in Michael Howard. If you remember, it rippled out from a disastrous party conference. Turning up the volume. Within two weeks, yeah, all standing up as a sort of, you know... <laughs> the endless <laughs> standing ovations. Yeah. I also yeah, think everyone felt sorry for Theresa May, which no one was... We, we weren't planning on that, really. I mean, it sounds terrible, but we didn't think that you were going to get this huge groundswell of sympathy for yeah. her just for being there and standing up. And there was a moment when she was talking about the fact that she'd gone back to her constituency one night and 
done the washing and, and that's the kind of detail people absolutely love. They love the idea that this woman just kept going when everyone else was completely flaky when they were all thinking about themselves even though she probably was thinking about herself there's a sense that she was thinking about the country when no one else was and I think that's what's happened is that the MPs quite often go back to their constituencies over a weekend and I think a lot of their constituents will have said this poor woman what are you doing to her? I'm quite sure you're right I, I spend more than half my life outside London in, in the Midlands and, and there is something approaching a wave of sympathy for Theresa May particularly amongst Tory grassroots mm. and particularly amongst women Tory grassroots. Uh, I've, they, they are leavers, most of them, but they're, they're not particularly ideological about it and they, they see a woman under siege from what they see as a lot of silly boys. Do, mm. do the grassroots always cling to their leader longer than yes. MPs? Yes. It might, might be a completely useless leader, but they're our completely useless leader and we should be loyal. They're loyal, doing a difficult job. And they, they have the quality of loyalty, which... Uh, which has been lacking the, 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 rest in the last have. few yeah. days. No, they're t- also t- not t- ambitious carry. either, are they? No. I mean, no, they're no. not ambitious for themselves. They're no. ambitious for their party and they want to be on the right side. They're not ambitious for their future because most of them aren't going to be doing much more than maybe being a councillor. And I, I detect a sort of, we've passed a point where that's not my Brexit amongst ordinary people who just literally just want this done. They want it finished. <laughs> yeah. They want to talk about something else. Something called Brexit. Anything. Uh, yeah. If it, you know. And that's the thing. If Theresa May can spend the next couple of weeks just saying, this is a deal. This is the deal. Let's just vote it and we can get on to our bright new future. Absolutely. Then that's a, a big... I thought there was a very interesting moment where you know she decided to speak directly to constituency chairman. Could have been pretty fatal. I mean, if, I think there's been a paradigm shift amongst leavers, pragmatic leavers, who want it done, want it finished, want to go out and, and, and know in their souls that, that the, the country is not doing itself any favours in obsessing about this. Tiny details of the Northern Ireland backstop. Technical question here, Francis. Mm-hmm. I wonder whether it might be technically true that the chairman of the 22 committee has 48 letters or more, but those who have written the letters have said, but hold on to this letter and don't use it until I say so. And I wonder whether the problem is to get all those people who have sent in letters to say that now is the moment to detonate them. It is opaque as to whether or not you can have a sort of preloaded sort of IED letter that you can... Yes. You know. there, there is a verification process, I think, when, when he reaches that. But I don't think that is allowing anybody else to see the letters. I do think that, that he would sp- spend some time ringing around saying, are mm. you sure? Mm. You know, is this still live? Is this still your view? But Michael Spicer, his, his chairman, had 19 forgeries amongst his... <laughs> so he was... You've in, you interviewed him for the Times this week. He, yeah. he was the chairman of the 1922... Who preceded... Who, who came before and was there when... And, 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 Smith and, was you know, and did, did the numbers and actually has the experience of being... So we know we have a historical precedent for what happens when the total is reached at that time. I think it was about 28 because that's our metric. Well, so <laughs> you know, and then one canard is that Theresa May would have a 24-hour notice period and, you know, that's not true. Brady would go to C. McKennedy, his, Theresa May's PPS, within couple of hours and say we're there uh, in that couple of hours I think he would be spending a ringing round mm. you know and, and there may be some letters in the pile that you know yeah. to be used please please check in with me yeah Graham before you you know c- count this I, I, I think it's more likely that lots of people have been telling big fat porkies <laughs> seems so unlikely <laughs> yes. uh, that policies would do that and there was a great story in your interview with Michael Spicer about the extreme lengths that people will go to yes, yes. to uh, cover up that they were submitting one of these letters yes yes including somebody wearing a false moustache <laughs> <laughs> Was that <laughs> uh, meeting? Uh, yeah, meet, meeting his secretary in Westminster's tube station. I think smuggled his letter 
of the magazine, and then the secretary who did who did actually weirdly she was the only person who who also knew that there were sufficient letters. But anyway, came back full of giggles. He said, but also it just adds. But we still don't idea, know. What's it? amazing is that yeah. we, the confidentiality at that time. You know, even fifteen years in, in his memoirs, he used a sort of. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then he has to find some more disciples, <laughs> other, other <laughs> less kind of b- b- biblical monikers for others. But you know, the fashion in those days was to was to do it confidentially rather than to wave it around at the six o'clock news. But it does sort of add to the idea that it's such an extraordinary situation when you have letters going in and out, and sort of almost the idea of postmen sort of delivering these, and, and you think. That's what the public can't really cope with. They're going, oh, my God, this is a really serious situation yeah. and you're messing around it's a bit with how many letters when you put the stamps <laughs> on, whether or well, not... there have been lots of Twitter memes of exactly that, sort of loads of papers coming down the chimney. <laughs> the sort of magic ink, it's a kind of ridiculous sense that this is completely insane, what's going on. Then you've got this woman at the middle of it who actually isn't particularly efficient or isn't particularly good, but she just kind of keeps going on and on, and in the end, she's the one that you have to admire. And what's this done for the reputations of those involved? Because I suppose in the, in the Ian Duncan Smith thing was slightly different. You know, Michael Howard wasn't the one orchestrating the let, certainly not publicly, to, what, urging people to do it. But for you, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Steve Baker, possibly even Boris Johnson involved as well. What's it done for them and their reputation? Not just that they are disloyal, but also incompetent. Yeah. Incompetently disloyal. It's not a great combination. <laughs> I, I think. Well, let's see where we are. I mean, you know. I mean, not, by the time this goes uh, out, it could have triggered forty-eight. Like, right, Charles. <laughs> we'll cut all this out. It'll be fine. <laughs> It is the idea they like being celebrities. That's, I mean, the most damaging for Jacob Rees-Mogg is that he always pretended and protested too much that he was really just doing this for the nation, that he was sort of upright. And I mean, I've I've always found him very irritating because I just think that he is so fake in so many ways. And there's that sense that he's sort of the upper middle class man who never changes a nappy. And he's always gone with that persona. And I always feel rather sorry for the wife struggling with the six children behind. I think you don't need to. She's a very forceful character, apparently. <laughs> what, haven't you got a line, Matthew, your column is not even properly posh? Yes. You know, no, no, he isn't. I mean, they're just rich people from Somerset. They're, they're not really uh, posh. They're certainly rich. Well, and he, and he, well. um, he hyphenates exactly. really smog, whereas really posh people mm. don't hyphenate. <laughs> <laughs> And it was, I thought it was telling that even at the meeting, the ERG meeting, before he came out and did his little press conference, Tory MPs were telling him, you know, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to join you in this mission. But he went out anyway because the cameras were waiting and he had yeah. to go and do something. Moths to the flame. Well, it'd be fascinating. And, yeah, it's almost certainly going to all be proved wrong. But, uh, you know, we, we thought it was all going to happen last Thursday when we did the podcast last week. It didn't happen, but it's now Tuesday. Who knows where we'll be by the end of this week. I'm sure at some point we'll come back to talking about Brexit. But let's move on and talk about something completely different because there are other things going on in the world. This is Alice Thompson. It's irrelevant whether a camera crew rescues baby emperor penguins from a chilly death or not, but it is vital to know whether, as the public, we should get involved in fights and terrorist attacks. The Met Police Federation has now said we need to get stuck in after the appalling incident in Wimbledon this weekend when a female officer was attacked. But the public can't become vigilantes when the acting head of the Met didn't even help his own officer being stabbed to death in the Palace of Westminster. We can't expect the public to take these kind of risks. There's quite a lot in there, Alice. I, I, I get the feeling we could talk for an hour about the, whether or not you should intervene to help the penguins. <laughs> that is a slightly different... This is this BBC documentary where the, the crew ended up digging out the penguins who were trapped. Do you want a moment on penguins? Go on then. Know. Where do you stand on penguins? So my view is that all the men like dynasties, which is the new 
David Attenborough programme because the men are the sweet, kind, nice ones who look after the baby penguins and coddle them, do everything they can for them, whilst the women, once they've given birth, swim off for four months and eat. And then when they get stuck in a ravine, they also climb out of the ravine and leave their babies. So every man I know absolutely loves this series because it, it confirms everything they want to say, which is that they are better at looking after children than women are. And what about film crews intervening? And I think the film crew probably had to intervene. You couldn't not intervene when you were right beside them. And actually, they did let a few die, didn't they, before they got tragically upset. <laughs> They were quite clever and not actually touching them, but giving them those little steps up and then working out what was going to happen. But to be honest, it's, this is going to happen. There's, you know, they do this migration every year. Every single year, you're going to get babies falling into ravines, and we can't have a film crew there every single year. Whereas, what is more important is the fact that we've had this incident that it was filmed of this female police officer being thrown in front of a bus by a sort of man karate chopping her pretty effectively. The sense then that the police saying the public need to get more involved they can't just drive by actually of course the public can't all stop their cars and get out and join a fight and also i thought i thought we were told not to to to, you know Mm. sort of have a go here with a number of awful stories of people who go out because there's some trouble on their doorstep yeah well we had one in the times this week which was about the um builder who went out and someone was ramming a jewelry shop and he went out to try and stop them and actually did stop them in the end but he also got attacked very violently by one of them with a samurai sword these reports in papers don't really square with my own experience. One is always reading newspapers about someone being beaten up or abused while everybody just stood around and no one did anything. Every time I've ever been a witness to anything like this happening, the public does actually intervene. I wonder whether it's sometimes that it takes often takes people a minute or so to work out what's going on, by which time it's all over. Francis? Well, the London Bridge attacks obviously were full yeah. of... Amazing heroism. I mean, you know, Tobias Elwood at the, the Westminster Palace mm. attack again, and, and and he came out and said, you know, people should, people, should, I just did what everyone should do, and people should do this more. I mean, I think the nature of this is that it's a split second decision. You know, I'd like to think I would get involved in the right way, but while being kind of aware of the risk, I don't think I would think about what Cressida Dick had told me whether to or not to <laughs> in that in that in that moment. But I agree, you know, we are conflicted about it. I, the, the classic one is, is people kicking off on a bus, you know, when you're seeing mm. someone just low-level, kind of yet loutish, mm. yobby behaviour on a bus, you know. I have had a word and, you know, feared for my, you know, and, and, and you know, had a fairly unpleasant time, and I haven't as well. So I think it's... Uh, I don't know. It's all really difficult. <laughs> it um, is difficult. If, you, if you're protecting your kids, it's obviously very different. Yeah. Protecting penguins. <laughs> I'm also totally with the penguin thing. I remember seeing March Penguins. You remember that film? Exactly. I remember my, remember my son at the bus stop nestling between my legs, being a baby penguin. And he came to me, Alice. Me, not his mother. See, that's the thing. And that's see, I'm, I'm not sure history. you would have built the ravine out of the. I think you'd have let them die. Just let them die. Mm. Yes. I think we might have, actually. Pull yourselves together. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's right. Where's your Brexit spirit? Get out yourselves. <laughs> We'd have been rather cross with the one woman who did get her baby out. That was, I think that was definitely <laughs> not showing female solidarity. <laughs> now, back to police. This is the weirdest uh, topic of discussion that we've ever had. Um, do you think, because there's been also there's been a, a massive discussion about violent crime in London and the, the rate of stabbings, and you know, and then that becomes a quite a debate about police funding and numbers. And is this 
call for us to get involved landed badly because it seems a bit like, well, there aren't enough coppers around. Exactly. So, you know, it's everyone for themselves. Sort yourselves out. We can't come to your rescue all the time. Well, that's what it is. But it's not just going to be a police numbers thing. I mean, there is a sense that there isn't a police presence on the streets, but they're also being asked to do such extraordinary things, the police now. So it's all, all the hate crimes, you know, policing Twitter, policing online. There's sort of an extraordinary array of things they have to do. A lot of historic sex abuse, that, that sort of thing. They're just completely overloaded now. And I think that is very difficult for them. And then they've got an increase in these county lines, drug rings. Well, it's if they're completely hard. overloaded, well, you know, what about Ted Heath and, and the Wiltshire police and, and all that? And every time anything goes wrong in policing, we get the same response from the police, which is they don't have enough money. They want more money and they want more officers. It may be true, but when it's the response to almost everything that goes wrong, you begin to wonder. And you wrote a couple of weeks ago a pretty excoriating column about the police. Yes, they're no but good. You think they're pretty hopeless. Mm. You called them institutionally mm. stupid. Yes, yes. What was the reaction you got? I, I got some very stiff letters. <laughs> and several speeding tickets by coincidence. <laughs> I, I checked that my MOT was in order. <laughs> and it is. Just, exp- just explain what was the point, because you, you t- touched on it partly there with the, the Ted Heath case. I was just saying that there are too many cases of um, crass incompetence by the police. And then, and this was the instructive thing, the officers concerned, or in some cases the chief constables concerned, simply being moved on to other better or equally good jobs. So it, it strikes me that there is a culture within the police force of um, too much forgiveness, too much understanding. And I, I, I think the whole thing needs shaking up. I, th- I don't think we need all the county constabularies that we do. I think we should have a single national police force with a unified structure. Police commissioners have failed, haven't they? Oh, yes. I what mean, a, who, what a waste who, of time. Do you know who yours is? I, I mean, no. I, I think ours no, I think it's Sadiq, some, some Labour deadbeat, I imagine, and, <laughs> you know, be, to be replaced by a Tory <laughs> yeah. deadbeat. And, it, it, Although <laughs> I think Cressida Dick would make quite a good cabinet minister. So she's quite good. The, the mm. people at the very top, they're one or two exceptional examples of leadership when you do think, actually, yes. she'd be good anywhere, doesn't she? But maybe she bucks the trend. They're, they're too easily captured, the, the PCCs, I think, captured by the, the force. And I can see yeah. how you would be. You're asked in for a cup of tea with the chief constable. He takes you out uh, with his officers on a particularly bad night in Chesterfield or wherever. Told some intelligence and, uh, about uh, that chap, yeah. Paris. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> a photo of him up in every police station. Yeah. <laughs> So where does it all end up politically? Does Sajid Javid have to, to respond to the idea of us getting involved, do you think, Alice? Well, I think that might then escalate the whole thing. Hopefully everyone will slightly ignore the fact that they should be getting involved because I think I, I think that is almost mob rule then. I think it is quite difficult to say. And also, do you then start having cut-offs and you should get involved when you get to 18 or you should get involved? <laughs> you know, between, or is it like national service? Like the, the really? when You have sort of between 18 and 45 you can, but then after that there's a cut-off point because you might have a heart attack. It's, it's impossible to tell, I think. Matthew's probably right. That, but the main thing I think is that you need to look before you get involved, if you are going to get involved, because you're never, we haven't got the training, you're never quite sure what's going on, are you, in that first minute or two? Quite often someone just has to uh, take a chance and, and go in and, and have a go. And, and, and the people always will, um, as, as you say, despite uh, uh, official advice. Probably the official advice should be that you should be cautious and, generally speaking, steer clear and uh, we all know that official advice is there to be ignored. 
Can we just have Matthew's story about how he saved a dog, though? Before no, <laughs> no, not that story again. <laughs> I don't know, you've I, not done it on the podcast before. I jumped into the River Thames uh, in 1978 in the middle of the winter to rescue a drowning dog. And as Mrs Thatcher told me afterwards, it was a very stupid thing to do. But, <laughs> but I did rescue the dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you did, and you'd have probably rescued the penguins as well, unlike, <laughs> unlike Heartless Alice. Um, in a sec, uh, we're, we're going to move on to mental health. We'll be back after this short break. 
We know people are mostly helped by those who close to them, who love them and who know them. We know that counselling sometimes works, but I, what kind of study has been done with counselling? Why don't you take 100 people who've suffered trauma and give counselling to 50 of them and no counselling to the other 50 and see what difference it makes? I, I, I don't know. Has it been done? What worried me, exactly what Matthew's saying, what really worried me is when the new money went in, he's right, we didn't actually know how it was being focused. So Theresa May says there was going to be money, for, particularly for child mental health. Well, give all this different help to schools, and each school was going to have to have a counsellor. I think where Matthew's right is we have no idea whether these counsellors, who are going to, all going to have to be trained up, how good that counselling is and whether it is going to have an effect and actually whether it could have a detrimental effect if the counselling's not good enough. My guess is that if you're going to have counselling and help, it needs to be very good. And if it's bad, it probably is worse than ineffective. And there's probably a few children in each school who really need help. But if you've got a counsellor in every school, there's a danger it just becomes a sort of... Their time gets caught up with school life and all that sort of thing. And you're right, if you have one in every school, that's a lot more people, so there's less money to go around, so there might be less good. And universities have the same problem. They're now these huge, vast expansions that they've had they then get these counsellors who are coming in but actually what I think what Matthew's right is they need more human contact a lot of these children that they actually need more contact with adults who care about them who are working with them who can see what's happening and can flag things up rather than just the ability to go and sign themselves in with a counsellor they've never met before who might not know what the issues are or the problems are going to be surrounding them I've had two encounters with the police in the last 20 or 30 years the first case I saw a body um, by the banks of the River Thames and I, I called the police and the whole thing was dealt with. I then had a number of calls from the police asking if I, I needed counselling because I'd seen a body. Most recently, just about four or five months ago, while I was actually asleep in a railway carriage, uh, some kids got my bag and started distributing the contents of the, the, the wheelie case all, all over the carriage. I woke up, realised this, got everything together, got the bag back again, reported it to the, the police at Derby Station. I, I was asked whether I needed any sort of counselling after this. I really don't. <laughs> Maybe other people did after they saw your drawers being <laughs> brandished around in a carriage. Francis, one of, it is one of the things we've seen in, in politics in relatively recent years. It, mental health has gone from something that basically nobody talked about to a sort of arms race of, well, if you're going to put in 10 billion, we'll put in 12 billion. You're not, you know, this. Yeah, and it, it gets lost in the numbers. Um, I mean, I don't know the truth of, of your question whether or not there is a sort of strong evidence base for CBT or, mm. or any of these things. I mean, I, I remember Patricia Hewitt actually kind of bringing this in, you know, in in 2008, and she was very hot on that. And there was even sort of talk of some sort of AI-delivered CBT, um, which does sound absolutely ghastly. Um, but <laughs> What's CBT again? C- cognitive behaviour oh, therapy. Yes, yes. You know, uh, mm. I mean, I, I, am, I would be guessing, but I would be surprised if there isn't any evidence base for it. Um, I acknowledge that there probably ought to be better and that, that there are limits to that, and that's just the nature of, of mental health. But it, it, as a catch-all, it doesn't really help us very much, mm. does it? I mean, I think it's our own understanding. I mean, we don't just talk about health like that, do we, in, in, no. in that broad broad sense. Um, we're not very good at, you know, teasing out where is depression, where is personality disorder. And it, you can see, you know, why politics has kind of gravitated towards the vague about it. These are difficult, you know, rather inflammatory subjects in some ways. Uh, they are. They're very inflammatory. And the problem with the case I'm trying to make is it too easily 
begins to morph into grumpy old man just saying that there is no such thing as depression and we should all just pull our so uh, yep. socks up and uh, snap out of it. I have plenty of personal reason to know that, that uh, depression is a huge scourge. It's very real. Uh, it, it, it's mm. an enormous financial cost and it's terrific emotional cost. I, I only wonder whether we know how to treat it. But well, you if you look at the women... The the, the sort of age groups, they do spell far too much time, I think, on older people who are depressed and far too little. Well, not too much, but it's all weighted against people when they're older, when they're not getting involved, when children are younger. But the way they deal with it is by just chucking out these counsellors to every school. Actually, what they need to do is target it. So CAMS is very underfunded, but it's not a sense of every school needs it's to look at every single child. Otherwise, yes, service, yeah. You'll never understand really what's going on if you just try and catch every child. Actually, what you need to be doing is targeting at one particular child in a school or a few particular children in a school that are having real problems. Matthew, do you think that what you were just saying then that part of the issue is that anyone who dares to question is this the right thing to be doing? It's become a sort of... It's not identity politics, but being on the right side of yes. mental health yes. is, is a thing at the moment. Yes. In a way that people might question, well, is that the right health, you know, beta blockers, the right thing or whatever. But if you're questioning mental health strategies, you're seen to be not appreciating that it's a problem. There's a whole range of issues of which fall into exactly the category you describe. The whole at me too thing, uh, the whole trans thing. These are all areas where one may actually have a, a, an entirely sensible, grown-up, sensitive, intelligent understanding of, of what's happening, but simply want to ask some questions. Uh, but the very asking of the questions seems to, to dub you as some kind of a sceptic who doesn't think there's a problem in the first place. It's, it's really annoying, and it, 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 it terrifically inhibits mm. useful, sensible debate. I agree with that. Yeah. You're just judged not to be sound on yes, that issue, yeah, so, you should, yeah. so you shouldn't be listened mm. to. And given that I mean, this sort of falls on Matt Hancock because it's health spending, but then you know it's also schools or it's prisons or whatever, is it something that the government is taking seriously enough? I mean, they talk a lot about it. Theresa May keeps talk talking endlessly about, about it. it. But it seems like years ago that Theresa May launched her mental health strategy. This was going to be her big thing. Yeah. We'll, we'll catch up, I think, in time. I mean, you know, it just... It just takes some time for people to learn the terms and and, and, and identify what the kind of landscape is. But it's um, also looking at a broad range of what you want, so that the GPs need to be able to say, you know, have you thought about exercise, have you thought about diet? It's, it's looking at it all in the round and having the time with people to sort out what they need and what they don't need. It's not, there isn't a magic pill. That's the problem, that's the difference. Mm. I think the difference between physical and mental ailments quite often is that actually it takes longer and it's harder to work out and it's often not as effective. A lot of antidepressants don't work. And I think for children in particular, you have to be really, really careful exactly what you're doing. And you do need really, really good staff and really good help. And the answer isn't to, to sort of write into law that every child must have five minutes with a council of every academic year. That won't solve any problems. It might make, not that anyone's suggesting that. It might actually make it worse, yeah, yeah. to be honest. I yeah. think actually what, you know, you need help when you need it. It's like, you know, telling the world that they all need endless checkups to see whether or not you know they've got you know, check for breast cancer check if you keep checking up you then become worried well and that actually then you're probably more likely to get ill and i think it's the same with mental health if you're constantly bombarding people with it what you need to do is take the people who really do have a problem who are really not being looked after at the moment and try and help them and we use the term mental health i'm not really sure what the boundaries of that definition are if um a, a doctor prescribes ritalin to to uh, a troublesome child is does that come under the 10 billion that we're spending on mental health or I, I don't know 
I'll, I'll be surprised if anybody does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we shall see. It's an interesting topic and one, you know, if, if God forbid we didn't have Brexit to fill our lives with joy, it's a subject we'd probably be talking about more often and possibly even better understand. Uh, that's all we've got uh, time for this week. My thanks to Francis, uh, Matthew and Alice. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Acast, uh, Spotify, wherever else it is that you get them from, where you can leave reviews on iTunes as well. We might read some out next week. Subscribe to my morning email. Go to the times.co.uk forward slash red box but for now for me matt jolly it's goodbye this episode of politics without the boring bits is brought to you by luton rising owners of london luton airport the uk's most socially impactful airport find out more at lutonrising.org.uk When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.